Well, um, 19 years ago, I started Bible.org with uh, my friend Joe. And that first year, we said we need to put a Bible on Bible.org along with the Bible studies. And we called the Zondervan folks and said, can we put your NIV up here? And they said, no, somebody might use it, not buy it. So we called Lockman Foundation. Can we put the New American Standard up there? And they said, no, same thing. You could pay $10 per user, visitor royalty like everybody else does. And we're like, oh, that's not going to work. So <clears throat> we decided um, in the fall of uh, 95 that maybe we should just start a new translation because all the modern translations were too copyrighted and permissions were too hard to get. And so we hired a couple of guys from Dallas Seminary to be in charge of the project, and and they hired 20-something translators, and like Don Glenn did Jeremiah, and Daryl Bach, who'd done Luke and Acts, commentaries did Luke and Acts, and Alan Ross had done commentaries on Genesis, so he did Genesis. So we tried to pick the guys who were experts on that book. So about a year later, I started posting the... Um, rough drafts online and we had called it the net bible because it was on the internet so we asked people what should the NET stand for like NIV is New, New International Version right so we got suggestions like neo-evangelical trash <laughs> and, and we got letters like emails like this this seems awful loud I'm going to turn it down Um, it's a shame that you have believed the lies of the devil. God has inspired one version of the KJV 1611. We do not need another version or try to correct the perfect and infallible word of God. Either bow on your face and repent before a thrice holy God or face the fiery pits of hell. Anyone who attempts to add to or take away from the word of God will not enjoy the benefits of heaven. The KJV is the only true Bible, and you better ask yourself, can I improve on God? <clears throat> Michael so uh, getting stuff like that made me go you know what I think I need to study up on this whole issue and what's going on with the King James only debate um, controversy and uh, and so um, so I started studying the you know Bible translate we were involved in a Bible translation so I thought I ought to at least understand what's going on <clears throat> and today in my email pops up the following email newsletter from the Tyndall House at Cambridge. Um, writer in residence, Brad Green, so I guess that means he's a student or faculty at the Tyndall House in, in Cambridge, um, England. Not Massachusetts. This, uh, evidently there's a new TV series on the BBC called Bible Hunters. And he says, in search for Bible truth, the first of two recent BBC Bible Hunters documentaries Rugged archaeologist Jeff Rose travels on foot, motorcycle, and camel, leading the viewer to Egypt and beyond, following the various Bible hunters of the past. Rose traces the steps of the German scholar Konstantin Tischendorf, who we'll talk about later, uh, the twins, Smith sisters, and an American businessman, Charles Lang Freer, 
says his argument is that they all made discoveries of ancient manuscripts which challenged the notion that the Bible was the unchangeable word of God and shook the faith of the Christian world. So I guess that's the theme of that TV show that BBC is airing. So this episode was really dealing with text, textual criticism. We asked Peter Head, um, Sir Kirby Lang Senior Lecturer in New Testament at the Tyndall House, Cambridge, an expert in textual criticism to explain. Textual criticism is the study of the manuscripts and other witnesses to the text of the Greek New Testament or any ancient literary text with a view to both ascertaining the earliest form of the text and understanding its transmission over the centuries. It doesn't have to doesn't have a negative connotation of passing unfavorable judgment on the New Testament, but involves careful analysis of the available evidence. Well, I just showed up in my in- inbox about noon today, and I go, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what we're talking about. And shows that this is, you know, this is a TV show that was aired last week. And so we're constantly going to be bombarded with these kinds of um, claims. Um, and, you know, when it makes the statement that, um, you know, it shook the faith of the Christian world, it doesn't have to shake the faith of the Christian world if you really understand what's going on. But a lot of people don't understand, you know, what went on in the transmission of the Greek text, all the copying process, and how we got our translations. And, <clears throat> and so that's what we're going to talk about. And of course, if they're unbelievers, they cannot understand that God, through the Holy Spirit and His power, was preserving the truth that He passed on to men. Yes, yes, and we're going to talk about preservation in a minute. So you're right. Um, and this, the King James crowd, there's a King James only crowd that says that the King James is the only inspired Word of God and that somehow God superintended that whole process and so it's all, you know, it's in, inspired and in, inerrant in and of itself. <clears throat> Some people hold to the Greek, uh, the Textus Receptus Greek text, that that's, you know, inspired and inerrant and so you have a lot of different things that are, are said out there. So by the time we're through with tonight, you'll understand this whole process and when they make their claims, you'll hopefully be able to go, oh, okay, I know what they think they're saying. <clears throat> now, if you like the King James, it's still in a good translation and it's okay until there's no guilt by association. If I mention something that the King James only people say, so, you know, if you've been using the same translation for 20 or 30 years, it's hard to switch. <clears throat> so, we're going to talk about the text critical process and textual issues um, are... And, and which raises the question of are our Bible, Bible translations reliable? And then uh, next week we're going to talk about philosophical issues of translation, um, like gender-inclusive language, dynamic versus formal equivalence. Do you want a literal translation or not? Um, and uh, when you're translating the Old Testament, should you use what you know from the New Testament? You know, do you go back and with your New Testament eyeglasses on, translate the Old Testament. So there's a lot of issues that different translations have different philosophies, and we'll we'll work through that. So then you'll go, okay, I know what my Bible is doing. Now, 
we do need to talk about inspiration, inerrancy, and preservation. Inspiration means that God directed the authors. He used their personalities, their vocabulary, their situation, and they wrote it with their own words, but he guided them. So we believe that every word is inspired, and we think you know, it's important that he used this word on air for man instead of anthropos for man. We think it's important when he uses this grammatical construction instead of that grammatical construction. And so, for instance, when it says, go and make disciples in Matthew 28, I've heard preachers say, while you're going, make disciples. And everything that you do, make disciples. That's not what the grammar says. That's the same go as Joseph got in the middle of the night, where it says, get up and go to Egypt. It wasn't when you wake up at 10.30 in the morning, you know, the soldiers are coming, go now. And so it's the same construction grammatically that says, go and make disciples. And so we, we pay attention to that. That's because every word is inspired. Inerrancy means that there are no mistakes. And we talked about, a few weeks ago, we talked about, you know, how maybe a different author's perspective, an eyewitness account, you might have differences. Okay, so those aren't mistakes. Um, sometimes we look at something and go, I don't understand this. Maybe we don't know the historical context well enough to, uh, to understand it. Or what we'll talk about tonight is maybe the scribes made mistakes when they copied the manuscripts. And so you've got mistakes in the text. <clears throat> and then preservation... God wouldn't go to the trouble of giving us his word if he wasn't going to preserve it. Okay. But if we know that there are mistakes in the Greek manuscripts and they differ, then we have to sit back and go, well, how does that affect our understanding of these doctrines? And so I think pretty much what you have to say is the original parchment that the apostle wrote on are inerrant. Right. But the copies are not. Okay? And the, port, uh, the preservation is he didn't preserve the original parchments and he didn't even preserve the original wording. So what he preserved is he preserved the doctrines. He preserved, you know, they're, they're, even with all the mistakes, we don't have any changes in any of our doctrines. Okay? So we'll, and we'll go through and see some examples of that. And we have lots and lots of manuscripts, so... You know, if you've got five different, four different manuscripts and you've got a mistake in each one, there's no problem going back and going, okay, I know what that fourth, fifth word is, right? Because you can look at the different manuscripts and say, oh, I know what that is. Yeah, that's kind of an oversimplification, but when you have a lot of copies, you can piece back the original with, you know, 99% certainty. <clears throat> so... Tonight we're going to talk about the transmission process and um, the Texas Receptus, the King James, and some of the archaeological discoveries. So what you have to understand, first of all, is that, you know, this is like one of Paul's missionary journeys and showing where he went. And I don't know if you can read these, but here's Rome and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Egypt. So, you know, the, the apostles wrote letters and sent them to these churches that they visited, and then they would make copies of these manuscripts and send them on, and then more copies would get made. Okay? And that went on for, you know, 
about 300 years until Constantine made the uh, Christianity the universal or Catholic religion. And here's Constantinople. Here's Nicaea. Um, and so you started having, now that Christianity was accepted everywhere, uh, they started having these church councils to discuss heresies and what do we think about the Incarnation and the Trinity, Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople. Those all happened in the 300s. And you got these schools or, of the scholastic uh, schools, monasteries, lots of scribes copying manuscripts. And there were a whole lot of, a lot of that going on here in Constantinople. And then you had a lot of that going on in Rome. But Rome was Latin. So early on, they translated the Bible from Greek into Latin, and then they made thousands of copies in Latin. So we have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts. But over here, the Greek Orthodox Church, um, they still copy theirs in Greek. So we have about 4,000 Greek manuscripts from the Constantinople or Byzantine area. Okay? Um, now, um, in fifteen hundred fourteen fifty, the uh, printing press was invented. Around fifteen sixteen, we still had no Greek text in print. We just had manuscripts, and there was. Uh, so some guy in Spain who was putting together a four-column polyglot Bible with Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin and, and Greek. And this guy named Froben, who was a publisher, said, oh, that's a good idea. We need to get a Greek text out. So he goes and finds Erasmus and says, let's put together a Greek text and get it printed. We need to be the first one to the press. And so Erasmus looked around and says, okay, I got six Greek manuscripts from Constantinople, Byzantium, and some have the Gospels, and some have the Pauline Epistles, and this one has Revelation, but not the last six verses. And he just kind of gets them and gives them to the printer, says, use this section here, and use this section here. And they come out with this, the first Greek printed book was the Textus Receptus. Now, that means received text. And that was just something put in the cover page, saying this is the received text, it's the approved text, it's approved and received and authorized by the Catholic Church, which was not true, it was actually just marketing hype. And it was very poor quality, and the Catholic Church did not like it and did not approve it. <clears throat> and one of the main reasons is because in 1 John 5, 7 through 8, it said there are three witnesses in heaven, the Spirit and the water and the blood. The Catholics, Latin, Vulgate, had there are three witnesses in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And I went and looked at my King James Bible uh, a little while ago just to double check this, but that's what my King James Bible says. There are three that bear witness, the Word, Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. What's important about that is there's the Trinity all for you in one verse. But that's not what was in the Greek Manuscripts, And so Erasmus said, I didn't put that in because I can't find any Greek manuscripts that say that. And so in 1520, a, a scribe named Roy, who's in, I think, Oxford, 
actually made up a new manuscript of First John and sent it to Erasmus. And he goes, okay, well, now that I have a manuscript, he, he changed it. And in the third edition, it then said the, the second one there and had with the Trinitarian formula. And then it became the approved text. So, so the Texas Receptus was not a very um, good text. It came from just a few manuscripts that were like 10th, 11th, 12th century from Byzantium. And, and Erasmus actually translated the um, last six verses from Latin back into Greek because he didn't even have the last six verses. And so he introduced some differences there. Of which book? Of Revelation. So then the King James is going to, you know, his translation process begins. And um, they use the Textus Receptus, and they use the Latin Vulgate. Um, in Revelation 22.19, the Latin Vulgate says that, um, refers to the Book of Life, but all the Greek text manuscripts say Tree of Life. And so when you read that verse, it says that if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. So it says book there in the Latin and the King James. Well, the Latin words for tree is ligne and libre for book. So they're very similar. So somewhere along the way, probably got changed. You know, Jerome did the Latin translation, I think, way back around 300 or something. So, somewhere back there, that probably got changed. So, that's why the King James would say book there instead of tree. Now, does that change the meaning? We talk about, you know, we got changes, but I mean, both of those are talking about eternal life. Right. Right? And we know from looking at all the other Greek manuscripts that it's really tree. Um, I said they used the Latin. Um, in Isaiah 14, 12, King James says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? All the other translations these days say, How are you, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. So they took Lucifer out and put star of the morning. What is Lucifer? Is that a name of Satan? Yes. It's actually the Latin word for star of morning, or morning star. And so when the King James guys translated that verse, they just used the Latin word and moved it over, and so we got a new name for the devil that we're really using a Latin word that means morning star when we say that. But it's stuck, and so that's where the word Lucifer comes from. Now, there's a King James-only lady named Ripplinger that says that we, since Jesus calls himself the morning star in Revelation, that we've actually replaced Satan with Jesus here. Okay? But that's kind of bizarre. But that's just some examples of, you know, where the words come from, you know, and for 400 years we've been calling, maybe before that if you count all the Latin, but we've been calling Satan Lucifer, but it's based on the King James just taking the Latin word and, and moving it over. Um, 
then in um, the 1800s, you remember that first article that mentioned Tischendorf? Well, in 1844, Tischendorf is traveling around the, the Middle East, and he goes to Mount Sinai, and he goes to um, St. Catherine's Monastery, and he sees this basket sitting next to the fireplace with all this parchment, and they're rolling the parchment and lighting the fires with it. And he pulls one of these out and goes, oh, this is the an ancient copy of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What are y'all doing? He goes, they go, we got a room full of this stuff. And he goes, show me. So he goes back and he's looking through their stack of stuff and he finds a complete Greek New Testament that, that we call Sinaiticus. And it's the whole New Testament and the date is 350 A.D. Okay. And so it was quite a, a, an extraordinary find. And so over the course of the next 1800s, 1900s, even today, they still are finding Greek manuscripts. Dan Wallace, who's a Greek professor at PTS, has an organization called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. And he goes over, he's been to St. Catherine's Monastery, and he goes over to Turkey and different places and looks through all the old records with a real high-resolution camera, and he's photographing all of these things and putting them online. And they use special light, lighting, and sometimes they'll find where there's a manuscript underneath the manuscript. And so they can use special black light or uh, infrared and go, oh, I can now read what's underneath. It's really hard to read. <clears throat> but um, I think he just recently discovered some fragment from the Gospel of Mark or something like that. So he's, he's actually found a few Greek manuscripts. So we use numbers like 5,500 manuscripts 20 years ago. I think the number's over 5,800 manuscripts that we have now. <clears throat> um, so we were finding these manuscripts in these older manuscripts we're finding in Egypt where it's dry. Kind of Antioch, Turkey, the the manuscripts that they have from, and they're old. They go back to, you know, 200 A.D., 100 A.D., and they look a lot like this. Um, you see how they're narrow columns, no spaces. They don't. They just continue the word on the next line. You know what that manuscript is? I mean, the, what that? You read that? The Gospel according to John. So it, they wrote that at the beginning and the end. <clears throat> I don't know which manuscript this is. This one is P75, P meaning papyri. And they say that it, they can tell how old these things are by the, whether they use all caps, small letters, because they changed the, the different writing styles. And this one they date somewhere between 175 and 225 A.D. So this one's really old. And here we can see it says the gospel according to Luke, and then it starts the gospel according to John. You know, and then in the beginning was the word. You can kind of pick it out if you know what to look for. But this one's actually pretty easy to read compared to a lot of the ones that I've seen. So these are, you know, and a lot of times a manuscript's not a whole book. It's, it's a page or a half a page. 
So when we start finding all these manuscripts, then we have this process called textual criticism where we compare them and say, you know, what, what does this one read and what does this one read? And, and then we see differences. And this process has been going on. Um, you know, it went on with Erasmus. <coughs> Stephanus took Erasmus's Textus Receptus and he compared more manuscripts to it and made notes saying, I think this is, should be this way. And then I think he actually added the verse numbers in the, into the text. And then Theodore Beza, um, he had a version, I think it was actually his version of the Texas Receptus that the King James guys used. But they continually just reprinted the Texas Receptus main text without changing it. And then a couple guys named Westcott and Hort came along in um, around 1881, and they came up with something they called the critical text. <clears throat> and they used a different method for trying to figure out um, which was the best manuscript. And the question is, how do you find best? Is best the oldest, or is best the mostest? So let's say we have an original document that gets copied one, three times. So we've got three copies, right? And then this one gets copied again, and so it's maybe that document that we have that's from 175. Okay? So this one gets copied a couple times, and then it's cop that copy is copied four times, so we have maybe some manuscripts from around 400 AD. But over in Byzantium, they made copies and copies, and we have now a whole lot of copies of that. But these are from 200 AD, 400 AD, 1280. So if I've got this manuscript that says X, and this manuscript says X, and all of these say Y, do I go, I got a hundred Y's and I've only got four X's? Who wins? What, what would be your logic in that situation? I would go with the oldest then. Yeah, what if somebody changed this one? Then would it matter if you had a hundred Ys if this this was this one was changed from X to Y? So these don't really count as a hundred. They count as one family. And so what the the Westcott work people said was those four thousand manuscript equals one vote. And that one manuscript we found in Mount Sinai, it's equal to one vote. And then those four or five that we found over in Alexandria, Egypt, they equal one vote. Okay? And so what's important to consider is it's obvious that these all came from the same grandparent manuscript. But if you have a document right here from three or four hundred AD and one over here from six hundred AD what are the chances they were copied from the same parent? Okay, so geographical distribution is something to consider too. Does that make sense? So if I got a Xerox machine and ran off a thousand copies of the wrong letter that doesn't really improve my argument here. And so because of the 4,000 manuscripts over here are 
um, from Byzantium, the majority of the manuscripts are from Byzantium. That became that group of manuscripts became called the the majority text. Okay, so sometimes you'll hear that phrase. So, is everybody have any questions about the copy process, the distribution, the numbers? Okay, let's talk about changes, mistakes. There are two types. At the end of uh, manuscripts, sometimes you'll see comments by the scribes. Here are a couple. One is, O reader, in spiritual love forgive me, and pardon the daring of him who wrote, and turn his errors into some mystic good. So he's, you know, saying, if I made any accidental mistakes, then, you know, forgive me, right? But there's a comment I like. Fool and knave, can't you leave the old reading alone and not alter it? (laughs) So sometimes the changes were intentional. Let's talk about, you know, accidental changes. They had errors in hearing, errors in reading, and errors in writing. The first would be, if you were scribes, I would stand in front of you and I would read the text, and you would sit there and you would just write it. You're not looking at the text, you're just hearing me read it. Well, when I use the word Lusanti, what if you wrote it with an O-U or you wrote it with the U? Those are actually two real words. One means washed and one means free. And so in the verse, I didn't write down the reference, but unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins, is in some manuscripts, and in other manuscripts it says, and freed us from our sins which is original. How would you tell? Well, you could do the external text criticism process and say, you know, I've got one over here in Egypt, I've got one over here in Rome, I've got one in Antioch, and they all say freed. And I I have a bunch in Byzantium that say washed. Okay? So, in that situation, I'd go with the oldest. But there's some other things. What about the context? What if he's been talking about water imagery or blood imagery? Okay? Maybe the washed fits the context. But what if he's been talking about slave imagery or slaves to sin? Then maybe the the freed imagery fits. Okay? So those are the kind of things that you would be looking at when you see a mistake. But does it change the meaning any? really doesn't. Another would be mistakes in reading. And you've probably done this yourself, but if you're copying and you're writing this and then you go back to the next phrase and you write that, and then you go back and you jump down to here because those are the same. You actually leave this whole line off. Okay? And you saw those narrow columns... You know, so you see the same three or four or five or six letters in a row, two lines down, and sometimes their eyes would jump. So you'll have a manuscript that would be missing the one phrase or series of letters, and you're like, this doesn't make sense, what's going on? Usually you have another manuscript, though, and you, you can figure that out. And then sometimes when they would write, they would read a phrase, and then they would come over here and write the phrase, and then 
somewhere in the middle of that process, they maybe transpose a word or you know, something. So those are the kind of accidental changes that happen. The intentional ones are my favorite. Matthew 18, 11 says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. The King James and New King James have that verse. New American Standard has it, but they put it in square brackets, which means they don't think it's original. But they didn't want to upset anybody, so they left it in. But the Net Bible, NIV, ESV, NLT, or NRSV, they all just leave it out. So if you're reading along, you go from verse 10 to verse 12, and the numbers just skip number 11. So, why did we leave that out? Well, we actually didn't, because only the Byzantine manuscripts have that in there. And the reason that it's in there is because that same story is in Luke 19, and it has that sentence. And so some scribe, it's overzealous scribe, says, well, this is over there in Luke, and it's really good, so he just copied it over into Matthew and put that in, inserted that. It doesn't hurt us any, it doesn't change, it's just not original. We still have the, the statement that Jesus came to save that which was lost, because we have it you know, over there in Luke. It just wasn't actually in Matthew. Um, I wrote a series of articles on the uh, miracles and in one of my articles on the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage, I said, Luke neglected to mention that she spent all her money on doctors because Luke was a physician. And he didn't want to talk bad about doctors, probably. Okay? And I get an email about three weeks ago from a person who says, um, I was reading your article, and my Bible says, in Luke, it says that she'd spent all her money on doctors. And I was like, really? So I went and looked it up. Yeah, it's in the King James. Okay. Well, again, the Byzantine scholars, scribes, they saw it over there in Mark 5.26. Okay. It says, Now a woman was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had endured a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So some scribe knew this story from Mark and added that little detail into Luke. But when you look at all the older manuscripts, it's missing. Um, I like this one. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says to her, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, correctly, you have said, a husband I don't have. Well, two manuscripts they found changed this. One of them had a problem with Jesus misquoting the woman. And so they changed it from a husband you don't have to I don't have a husband. Because he got the word order wrong. They got the word order wrong because he's probably saying, yes, lady, there's somebody at home, but he's not your husband. You know, His emphasis is on the word husband. A husband you don't have. Okay, But they, they felt like he was misquoting her. And so I, they, they put that in front of it and changed his, his wording. Another one said, well, Jesus couldn't have quoted her wrong. She must have said it wrong, so they changed her wording, and she says, the husband I don't have. Okay. But it's easy to go back and identify you know, what's original. It's just it's interesting to see the kinds of changes that they made.
Um, King James says God was manifest in the flesh. The Net Bible, New American Standard, most others say He was revealed in the flesh. Which do you think would be the original in that situation? Dale Ripplinger says we're trying to take God out of the Bible. And so we've changed the God to He. Mm-hmm. But we were very inept at that and left a lot of gods in. So that's probably not the right answer. If you were a zealous scribe and you were copying this, what does the he mean? Who does the he refer to? Jesus Christ. Yeah, he refers to God, he refers to Jesus Christ. So, in order to make it clear, probably just change the he to God. Okay? So, we're not trying to take God out of the Bible, it's just we go back and look at these other manuscripts and go, these have he, these have God. Why would someone change this? It's not a conspiracy to take God out of the Bible. It doesn't change the meaning. You know, if you read the whole context, it's still, it's obviously talking about God. So, um, anyway, that's, that's, those are the kind of intentional changes. None of those, but but you notice that none of those changed any of the meanings. It's just, usually they took something from another passage that embellished this passage and and added it to make it clearer, uh, or clearer, or give you more information. But only having it in one place in Mark does not mean, and, and finding out that it really didn't say that in Luke, it only said it in Mark, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't hurt us any. Okay. It doesn't change our doctrine, it doesn't change the story, it just changes how, maybe what Luke said about these things. Any questions or thoughts? Or comments about that? Could that be applicable to keeping or rippling their claim that the blood was left out of passages, meaning they don't want to be specific about being the blood of Jesus that cleanses from sin or whatever, would that be another example of Yeah, there, there are probably, I, that's certainly not an exhaustive list, I just wanted to give you several examples, but you know, the fact that the word blood might have been left out of a certain passage it, was it taken out of all of the passages? You know, did we, did we take that Luke, the lady spent all her money out of both places? You know, did we take... The fact that it's not in... When we know what the scribes did, and they added things, like sometimes we'll find Jesus Christ in a manuscript, and another one will just say Jesus. Well, we're not trying to deny the Messianic, you know, that Jesus is the Messiah. They didn't take all the Jesus Christ out. It was just that somebody stuck Jesus Christ in. Paul Harris did that in John, in the translation of the Net Bible. And James Davis is going through and tagging every word with the Strong's number. And he's... Christ isn't in here. But he, you know, you've seen it so many times. 
that even though it just said Jesus in the Greek, he put Jesus Christ in the English. Okay? So if I take the Christ out of that, I'm not, I'm not taking away the you know, deity of Christ or Jesus or anything. I'm just fixing a mistake because it says Jesus Christ in a thousand other places. Right? So I'm not, I'm not hurting anything. I'm just I'm getting back to the original text. And if there are, you know, there are two or three other places that talk about the power of the blood, then removing one of them that seems to have been changed by a scribe does not affect my doctrine. Does that make sense? And so what they usually do, they being the King James only people, is they go to these verses that were changed and claim a conspiracy to make Jesus into Satan or deny the deity of Christ or the power of the blood or take God out of the Bible or change. There's one verse that says worship in spirit and truth and the other versions, another one that says another place, worship God in spirit and truth. Not says worship by the power of God versus worship God. She says we're trying to keep people from worshiping God because we changed it from worship God in the spirit to worship by the Spirit of God. I mean, that's not what's going on. That's just um, looking at different manuscripts and different ways of understanding the syntax or the grammar. Okay. So, those are the kind of claims they make, but when you look at these examples, you can say, no, I'm not denying that God was revealed in the flesh just because I put went back to the original Greek he because it's clear from the context that the he means God. Now there are a lot of places in the Bible that where it says he in the Greek we put Jesus to make it clear. Okay, we have the freedom to do that in our translation. Some scribes thought they had the freedom to do that when they copied and especially the Byzantine is that answer your question? Does that make sense? Um, <clears throat> the majority text, we mentioned that earlier. There are not a big crowd, but there are a few people and, and um, good people that believe that the majority text is the best Greek text. The majority text is that Constantinople Byzantine pile of 4,000 manuscripts, right? And so their assumption, the reason for believing that is that they think that God would preserve his word in the majority of manuscripts so that it would be available. God wouldn't allow the really good manuscript to be hidden away in a monastery till 1844. Okay? Do you understand that assumption? Well, I think that that assumption maybe proves too much because why wouldn't, if we're going to count numbers, why wouldn't we go with the, the 10,000 Latin manuscripts? That's more than twice as many, right, as the Greek manuscripts. Or, you know, the last couple decades, the NIV sold more than the King James. So does the NIV, is the NIV now the Bible that um, is the what God is preserving his word in? 
Well, someone might argue that the Latin manuscripts were not really copies of the original manuscript. No, the translation itself. They are true. That is true. They are they are just a translation. <clears throat> but um, I think the idea of preservation is not necessarily the uh, exact words from the, you know, we talked about preservation is the the doctrines, the text, as far as, I mean, we, we do have the words down to about 99%. And I guess that the ones that we don't have, um, we haven't been able to figure out, we're like talking 50 places, and none of those make any difference to any doctrines or have, you know, any significant meaning. So we have we have actually been able to reconstruct the original uh, using those guidelines that we talked about. But I don't think that, you know, God has preserved his word. He has preserved the church. He has preserved the doctrines. There's no doubt what the Bible teaches, even if you were to use the Latin or if you were to use the King James or if you were to use the NIV, right? And so he has preserved, um, if there was just, you know, if the original manuscripts had it, uh, ex- survived is the word. I was reading, somebody said that, you know, somebody could have changed the original and we'd never know. You know, we'd be focused on this is the original and, you know, the fact that we have so many different copies lets us actually recreate the original um, and that's almost a safeguard. So my my thoughts through all of this is that when you when you hear people making claims, whether it's a King James only person saying that there's a conspiracy, and if we have time next week, we'll talk about some of their their actual claims. <clears throat> um, not understanding this process will help you realize that, you know, what they're talking about doesn't make any sense. It's not possible. Um, the people that are involved in the conspiracy have done a very bad job of taking God out of the Bible, denying the deity of Christ, and that kind of thing. And so it should, you know, help you have actually more confidence in the text, knowing that, you know, how we are able to recreate the Greek original you know, as close as we can. And when they talk about thousands of errors, I mean, you know, they're talking about missing letters, punctuation differences, you know, everything counts. But it's uh, it's not that, not every error is not, you know, big errors like I've been showing you. The ones I'm showing you are some of the worst ones. And you can see that they're not bad. You know, it's just usually some guy trying to take something from another passage and add it to this one. So, the King James people are always going to ask us, why did you leave this verse out? Well, we didn't. The King James added that, because it was based on a really bad Greek manuscript called the Textus Receptus. Because that whole family of manuscripts had a tendency to add the stuff in. And so the King James has, I think, a dozen more verses than the other the other Bibles. 
But in every one of those situations, the thing that was added or not included in a new translation exists somewhere else. So we haven't lost any new text. You're saying that no English translations are based on the whole bunch of manuscripts? Yes. Um, there are no English translations based on the majority text, which, again, he's preserving his word through the majority text. You wouldn't, you, wouldn't you think God would have had some, you know, these English translations be based on that? You know. So they get a, a really, um, they get too much credit with the majority text crowd. We do take into account what they say, and sometimes the guys who look at the things go, you know what, I'm going to go with the Byzantine text on this one. So it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen sometimes. And the majority text, Paul and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, is not all the same. There are a lot of differences between the majority text manuscripts. So that same process that we are going through between Byzantium, Rome, Egypt, Jerusalem, and we're comparing, they would have to do, if only if the only thing they did was took the 4,000 Byzantium manuscripts, they'd have to go through that same process. They probably would have a harder time figuring it out. Because if I don't know if I mentioned this, but the Constantinople area is a, a moist climate, and the manuscripts don't last very long there. And so the oldest manuscripts they have from Byzantium are 900 A.D. Most of them are you know 11th or 12th century. And so you don't have any really old ones that are close to second, third generation. You have 15th generation or 12th generation, you know. So the number of times that that was copied, you know, you're, you're many times more removed from the original than those P75. That might have been copied from the original. More prone to error in reading yeah, and copying yes, and yes. listening, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I think about Josiah the king they didn't even have the law for several years, and they found it when they were doing the rebuilding or remodeling or whatever. And, you know, God allowed His word to be hidden away. You know, so I just don't think that the assumption that the majority text people um, are going with, I just, it doesn't work for me. But it's it's helpful, I think, for you to understand that that's a, a popular, not real popular, but I know some people that have, you know, come, gone to this church in the past and they believed it. And, you know, so we, we talked about that. So. Next week, we're going to talk about the Bible translation theory, um, gender-inclusive language, the Old Testament, using the New Testament, the formal equivalents and all that. So, um, Any questions? Well, what about the claim I read in Ripplinger's book about the new translations that says, well, how about Westcott and Hoare being shady characters? 
involved in occultism and this and that and blah, blah. Well, usually what you do when you don't have good arguments is you use ad hominem attacks. Okay? And so I would have to say that that's probably... Oh, she does have an MA and PhDs. She has like three degrees. Okay? But she neglects to tell you that they're all in interior design. Okay? So nobody takes her seriously except the King James own crowd. But there's nothing, you know, that I've ever heard of about Westcott and Hort being in the occult. I mean, you read Michael's letter to me. You know, I mean, that's just the kind of language that's used. And you can go to King James only site after site, and there's a ton of. Um, it, it's like you guys are copying all from the same, copying from each other or something. They use the same kind of vocabulary. And, you know. James White has a book out called The King James Only Controversy, and he covers a lot of that stuff. I picked up a really big, thick one at uh, ETS a couple of years ago. Um, you can borrow it if you want. <clears throat> but we'd go in a lot more detail and very scholarly and, you know, good research. And, you know. So I've, I don't know that I could answer all of your questions very well. Do you have any comments on the translation by Jay and Darby? Um... Yeah, we will talk about that next week. It's a, I think I give the warning, beware of Bible translations done by one person. You know, although that would be one of the better one-man translations, you know, you still are going to possibly be um, subject to his biases, you know, theological biases. So certain passages he may translate a certain way. And so, um, overall, I'm sure it's great. There just may be some passages where maybe he takes some, he, he translates it based on his dispensational view, you know, where with the Net Bible, you know, we were very careful to not go dispensational or covenant in our translation. When we, we, we sent it to guys who were at Gordon Conwell, a big covenant guy, and said, you know, check out our translation, and you know the guy comes back and says, "This looks very uh, even-handed the way you've translated these things." So, a single guy doing something, you know, doesn't have the checks and balances, maybe. So. Any other questions? <clears throat>